Well, good morning, Victory Life Church. Great to see you today. And a happy Thanksgiving to you. Welcome to church. For those of you that's joining us online, my name's Otto Ramos. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And I hope each and all of you had a very wonderful Thanksgiving. I don't know about you, but I ate way too much. I was reflecting upon it with some folks here on stage and asked them if they ate way too much. And they said, well, if you measure on the basis of the fact that I almost made, ate half of a buffalo, I didn't eat too much. I can relate to that. I had three Thanksgivings this week, and uh, it was indeed a great time to be with family and friends, and so I hope you had the same experience as well. If this is one of your first times joining us this morning, I just want to extend a very special welcome to you, and if you'd like to learn more about who we are, you could certainly do that. Just let us know that you're here. You can take one of those communication cards that can be found on the seat back in front of you, and you can fill that out. And if you have some extra time afterwards, please stop by our Welcome Center and see me. I have a free gift for you just for visiting with us this morning. And for, for those of you joining us online, you can go to our website at vlchurch.com and click on the banner that you see on our website that says, Are You New Here? Just complete the form that pops up on your screen and we will connect with you sometime this week. But indeed, thank you for joining us this morning. I do have a few announcements this morning. As you know, because Thanksgiving is coming to a close, Christmas is right around the corner. And uh, because of that, we want to just let you know that we will be having a Christmas Eve candlelight service. And we're really excited about that. That will happen, of course, on Christmas Eve, December 24th at 4 p.m., and we're really excited to gather together and worship the Lord Jesus. You know, we celebrate Christmas because God wanted to be near us. That is why we sing the song Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. And John tells us that God loved us, and that is why he sent his son to be with us. And so we're really excited to worship together on Christmas Eve at 4 p.m. We hope you'll put that on your calendars and bring a friend or a family member. Then the very next day on Sunday, December 25th, is actually Christmas, and we will gather to worship on that day as well at 11 a.m., and we hope that you'll join us at that time. And because Christmas is right around the corner, we're going to be decorating this place. This place is going to be looking a lot like Christmas, and if you'd like to participate in that effort, we'd love for you to do so. Um, you can sign up to volunteer on our website by clicking on the banner that looks like the one you see on the screen. It says, help us with Christmas decorating. We need folks to help us bring all the Christmas decorations in next Sunday and then on Friday, December 9th and Saturday, December 10th. Brandy Court and her team will be uh, decorating this entire facility and it will look a lot like Christmas. And it's beautiful and we're really excited about that. So we'd love to have you help us on that team. Well, that's all I have in the way of announcements this morning. If you have come to worship our Lord Jesus with your tithes and offerings, you know what to do. You can text to give, you can give online, or you can give as you exit the sanctuary this morning. But indeed, thank you for worshiping the Lord with your tithes and offerings. Can I ask you to stand this morning? And as you do so, can we bow for a word of prayer as we prepare our hearts to worship the Lord Jesus? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he stepped into this world to live among us and to be with us. And our prayer is just that right now, that you would be with us because we have come to worship you because we want to be with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's just get ready to worship today. God is seated on the throne. He's seated in the heavens. We worship him today because of his goodness, his kindness, his love that he's poured out on us through his son, Jesus, who has redeemed and saved us. This is where worship starts. Here in the temple of my heart, remembering who you are and all you've done. This is your majesty, all I have tasted and I've seen, remembering who you are and all you've done. I see the Lord. I see the
Because God did not just come to this earth to save us from the hardships of this life. He will, but he came to this earth to save us from the hardship of death. You see, sin separates us from God and sin leads to death. But grace, through the blood of Jesus Christ, leads to life and life eternal. We're going to sing about his grace this morning and how good his grace is to save us. But it's impossible to receive the magnitude of his grace without first recognizing the depth of our sin. That's not a beautiful picture this morning. But when I think of where I was and where I've been, I then begin to see the worth of God's grace in my life. I need to always remember where I've been and where he's brought me so that I can always see the beauty of his amazing grace, which leads to life everlasting. So this morning, I thank him for his grace. I worship him for his grace. I love him and praise him for his grace.
bow your heads this morning as we pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace, unending, unfailing. I need it every day. All my life, you've been faithful. All my life, you've been so, so good. And one of the descriptions of your faithfulness in the word is this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This morning, Lord, I remember that you are faithful to forgive me my sin all my days and to cleanse me from unrighteousness all of my days. That's your faithfulness. And I worship and I praise you for it today. Amen. Good news of God. 
Lord Jesus, your presence is so sweet. Lord, you made a way back for us into the presence of God. A path paved in your perfect sacrifice. A path that reminds us each and every day that we are objects of mercy and not wrath. We are objects of grace and not judgment. Because of your goodness each and every one of us. Not one of us could stand in your judgment, Lord, apart from Christ. But because of Christ, we look forward to your return. So Maranatha, O Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. All right, at this time, young disciples, you may be dismissed to get on down the hall. There is some fun activity waiting for you today. I saw wrapping paper in boxes, and I don't know what's going on, but you will find out momentarily. I'm kind of excited about it for you, and I'm also excited for those of you who are remaining here. We are in our 14th week in the book of Matthew. Can you believe that? We have been in this book all that time. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn into the book of Matthew and chapter 24. That's where we're going to be today. We are winging our way towards the end of this book of Matthew. We've been stopping at every destination in this book that talks about something important as it pertains to evangelism, as it pertains to the salvation that Jesus is bringing unto the world. And so today we're going to talk about being ready for the consummation of that salvation, being ready for the day of Christ's return. I spent my week getting ready this week. Some of you are wondering why I'm here. You got an email that I'm on vacation. I am. This is what I do for fun here today, is preaching. And so uh, I am on vacation. My, my family was, my kids were off school this last week, so I was home with them last week. And uh, then this week, Gina and I have some trips planned. So the minute I'm done today here at church. I'm going to go back on vacation and enjoy some time with my wife this week. But I am excited to bring this passage to you today because it's really, really powerful. As I mentioned, I spent my week getting ready. We hosted Thanksgiving at our house. We had 17 at our house on Thursday. That wasn't a huge crowd, but it wasn't a small one either. And it was kind of fun to get ready. We, Gina and I, we enjoy hosting, and so it didn't matter how many times we needed to head back to the store because there was always something we forgot. It didn't matter how many times that we cleaned a room and then looked at what our little boys had done and thought, no, no, that's not how we left this room five minutes ago. It didn't matter how many things we needed to get prepared because we had guests coming, and it was really, really exciting. So we, we, we spared no expense. We did all the work. We did all the hard work to make sure things were prepared. It's just something that we'd both been taught since we were kids. This was something that we did in my household growing up. We'd get ready for company. 
We'd get ready to have guests. We would clean. We would get things just perfect. My mom had three boys. She needed to make sure the house smelled right so the candles would be lit, you know. And we would make sure that everything looked good and, and, and something was in the oven and everything was ready. One of my favorite moments of all time is we got ready for some of my parents' best friends to come in from Minnesota. We were excited for them to get there. We had done all the work to get ready, and they were literally walking up the sidewalk to our house. Everything smelled right. Everything looked right. Everything was prepared in the kitchen. And the German shepherd went over to greet them and just threw up all over the floor right in front of the door. And I remember everything had been perfect up to that moment, and my dad said, God, help us. <laughs> I just thought, yes, we need your help right now. Send them to the side door. We will spare no expense and go to great lengths to make sure we are ready for when company's coming, won't we? We will, we will, we will, we will go all out when we have guests coming into our house. And Jesus today is going to tell us that he expects us to be ready for his arrival. He expects us to to really, if you will, roll out the red carpet for him, to be doing what we ought to be doing to prepare for him to come. So important is our readiness, the readiness of God's people for Christ's coming, that beginning in Matthew chapter 24, verse 44 and following, he is going to give us five straight parables about being ready. He's going to preach a sermon that in modern English language would be redundant, in that he makes the point five times and in five different ways just how important it is that we be ready for his coming. He doesn't direct the readiness to those who do not yet know him. He directs the, the exhortation to readiness towards those who do know him, towards us, towards believers. Five straight parables. So important is readiness to Jesus that he gives us five parables right in a row going into Matthew chapter 25. So we'll be ready for his coming. I don't know when I'm going to see Jesus face to face. None of us do. I mean, you could choke on your ham sandwich this afternoon as you're yelling at the Browns and be gone from here. We don't know when our moment of seeing Jesus is going to be. We also don't know at which time Jesus is going to bring this present age to a close. So whether we see Jesus through dying a natural death or whether we see Jesus through the return of Christ, we are to be ready. We ought to be ready. Jesus is very concerned that his people be ready for him. And today we're going to look at at least two states of being, two states of being, there's, there's more here in 24 and 25, that will ensure that we'll be ready to see him. I certainly want to be ready. And as your shepherd, I want to make sure that you are ready as well. We're going to read an extended passage today. So if you need to do some calisthenics as I'm reading, go ahead. We don't want you to zone out. We're going to read 36 through 51, but there's a lot here. So as I mentioned, if you need to start kicking your feet, just don't kick the seat back in front of you. But concerning that day and the hour, no one knows, said Jesus. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, stay awake, 
for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions." But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In the place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, gnashing of teeth. Now, I'm going to break this down in, in two ways today for us, and we're going to end up with two states of being that make us ready for the coming of the Lord. But I'm going to give you first the Reader's Digest version, and then we're going to go kind of verse by verse. No, I, want, I want to say verse by verse. That'd be 15 verses, 16 verses, and we'd be here till two. I, I'm going to go section by section here uh, after we've done the Reader's Digest version. The Reader's Digest is this, and I've already mentioned it in the open. Jesus is incredibly concerned about how he's going to find his followers when the end of time comes, are they going to be ready? So he begins with concerning that day. That's the day of days. That's the day when the age in which we are living in, this age that has been marked by sin and death, is going to be brought to a close. That's the day. The day that, that, that Christ is going to inaugurate the end of history. Now, in 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 churches throughout the United States today, there are different views on how this is going to take place. All right, we're an interdenominational church, and we have lots of different people who are raised a lot of different ways. So many people see this passage as a passage to say this will inaugurate the end of time, and the inauguration of the end of time will be what's called the rapture. Two will be ta- one will be taken, one will be left. Jesus is going to come, and he's going to take his church out of the world, And then there'll be seven years of judgment upon this sinful world, and then he'll come to finally end time with judgment. There's also many believers today who think that there will be a a tribulation, seven years of judgment, and then Christ will just come one time. So the rapture is the idea that he's coming for the church before judgment begins, a judgment upon this earth, that will then end with judgment upon every single living being. And then there are others who believe, no, the church is going to be here for the seven years of judgment. We're going to have to suffer through that. And then Christ is going to return, and he's going to judge everything or all of us in one day, some to eternal reward and some to eternal punishment. You say, which way do you lean, Pastor? Man, I I lean towards the rapture. I think that there's good evidence in the scripture that that the Lord is going to take his church First, and I think this this taking and this leaving uh, is good evidence of that. But if you were someone who believed a different way, I would look at you and say, "Well, your views are probably biblically supported as well." In fact, I wouldn't get in a fist fight over it. Is what I'm trying to get at. But what we're really trying to see here is readiness. That's what Jesus is focused on. Regardless of how you parse the end of time, in the moment between this present age and the age to come. 
there's going to be a great separating. And that separation is going to be sudden. It's going to be unexpected. However you parse it, some are going to be with the Lord forevermore. And some are not. And that should be concerning to us. But where Jesus goes with this is interesting too. He's not so concerned necessarily in these particular passages about the disposition of those who do not yet know him. He's concerned about the disposition of you and I, those who claim to know him. He wants to make sure that we do not end up in the place with the hypocrites, which is the end of the passage. Now that's an interesting way of describing hell, isn't it? The place where the hypocrites are. But Jesus has a lot of different uh, language for describing that place where he is not. Hell, Gehenna, the outer darkness, the, sea, the lake of fire, the Gehenna, the, the rubbish dump that was outside of, uh, of Jerusalem. He, he describes this place as a place you just don't want to be. And he wants to make sure that we, who claim to know him, don't end up there. And that's interesting. We've already established in this series that according to the words of Christ, you can believe in Jesus but not be a follower. You can accept the word but never truly be a follower of Christ. We've established in this series that you can believe in Jesus and be a hindrance to his work. Remember Peter? Get behind me, Satan. So you can believe in Jesus. You can know who he is. And you could be a hindrance to his work. And though we did not look at this passage in particular during this series, we know that in the book of Matthew is that incredibly scary quote of those people who say, well, did we not do all of this in your name, Jesus? And at the end of time, Jesus will look at those people and say, what? Depart from me. I never knew you. Yuck. I wish it were sunshiny out to preach this sermon. Because I, 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 this, is, this is some heavy stuff. This is not exciting. This is heavy. This is heavy. That he's concerned about our eternal disposition. He doesn't want us to end up in the place of the hypocrites. Here's the good news. You don't need to end up there. He's going to tell you that, that you'll be able to stand in the judgment. When he returns, however he returns, in that day, you'll be able to go, I'm looking forward to that. I'm not concerned about that. I'm looking forward to that day. I'm not scared of that day. So how do we as believers in Christ make sure that we're ready? So this is the Reader's Digest portion that we've just completed. Now let's move into sort of a section-by-section, concept-by-concept look at this passage. How do we know that we're ready? Well, I'm going to just throw it out there to you, and then I'm going to explain it. The first is this. You have to do the hard work. You have to do it. Jesus expects it of us, that we're going to be doing the work that he's called us to on the day that he returns. And that hard work has everything to do with readiness, and that's what we're going to see in just a moment. But the second thing that we see, and that's the second parable. We've got two straight parables here that we're going to explain. The second thing is that you have to look after what God's entrusted to you. Now, there's more. There's more. Because there's the parable of the ten virgins that's going to come after this. And then there's the parable of the talents that you've heard at least in 12 sermons during your lifetime. There's the parable of the talents, right, that comes after that. And then after that... There's the parable of the sheep and the goats. And each one of these five parables has a state of being to be in in order to be ready for the return of Christ. But the problem is it's a state of being. It's not an activity itself. Isn't that scary? Now, Matthew 25, when we get into the sheep and goats, there are specific activities that are listed, but, but, but there is not like five 
like simple, I'm doing this on the day before Jesus returns, and because I did all five of those on March 14th, 2028, I was ready for March 15th, 2028, and that's the day he returned because I did all five the day before. There's, there's not a list like that. There's states of being that he wants to find us in, and we're going to look at the two today for our remaining time together. And the first state of being is being ready by doing the work. Now, if you look up to the beginning of this passage, you see a couple of things that I think are worth mentioning because they get into this idea of the hard work that needs to be done. There is a secrecy and a suddenness to the Lord's return. Isn't that what the first section is all about? A secrecy. Only the Father knows. The angels don't know, even though they work for the Father. The Son doesn't know. Jesus himself does not know. And then there's going to be a suddenness. Two will be working in the field. <coughs> one will be taken, one will be left. Two will be grinding at the mill. I guess you don't do this in a mill. You kind of just look at the wheel. One will be taken, one will be left. They'll be giving in marriage <coughs> and getting married. They'll be doing the things that we do as human beings, eating and drinking. We did a lot of that this week, right? We'll just be living our lives, not expecting it. Just as in the days of Noah, suddenly he will return. And most won't be ready for that return. Most won't be ready. But that's not the part that gets us, is it? That's not the part that, that's confusing. For those of us who read the Bible, we're like, well, why doesn't Jesus know? Isn't Jesus the Son of God? Haven't we learned in Matthew that he shares in divinity with the Father? Jesus should know. And I agree with you, Jesus should know. I don't think it's fair that he doesn't know. Or is it really that Jesus is choosing not to know? Because haven't we already established that Jesus knows things that normal human beings just don't know? Divinely inspired things. Don't we know that Jesus knows? So, so what's really going on here? Jesus is choosing not to know. Because if he wanted to know, he could know. I mean, the, the Father and Son share all things. If he wanted to know, he could know. The theology and doctrine that we have from the rest of the Bible let us know that if Jesus wants to know, he can know. But wouldn't part of, of God's great perfection be that he can have the restraint of not knowing something. I know, three of you, I just blew your minds. A hundred of you are just like, I have no idea what he's talking about. But could it be? Could it be that God can choose not to know on purpose? Doesn't he, don't, don't we learn that, that God already chooses not to know something about you? That, that when you repent and ask forgiveness, he remembers your sins no more? Isn't that an incredible thing? I mean, for all you married couples that are sitting here today, you can't forget the sins that your spouse has done against you. Try as you might. You can't remember. You can, you can forget some of them, you know. You didn't put the lid back on the toothpaste, that kind of thing. But you, you can't, the big stuff, you can't, you can't forget. Apparently, Jesus can choose not to know things. Wouldn't that be an exercise of his divinity? To say, I don't choose to know. Why, though? That's the question. Why? If there is this divine secret and the, and the Son is subordinate to the Father and Jesus isn't as important as the Father and therefore he can't know, which isn't our theology, that's called Arianism. We condemn that in the fourth century. So if, if we have to go with, with, with orthodox Christian belief that Jesus could know if he wanted to, we have to go with the idea that he chooses not to know, but why? Why would Jesus choose not to know? Could it just be that the earthly Jesus chooses not to know when his return is going to be 
because if he hints at it or he tells his followers, they will not be doing the work they ought to be doing until just before he returns. Could it be that Jesus, who wants to reveal all things to us so that we can do exactly as we ought to do, is, is not going to allow himself to know the return date because if we knew the return date, we would not be in a perpetual state of readiness. Could it just be? After all, if I know at what time my wife is getting home, I'm not going to start getting the house ready five hours earlier. She's going to want the house to be in a certain way when I get home, and I know these things because she should not have to come home and feel like she's got to clean up after me and the kids. But if I know that she's coming home at 4 p.m., I don't start cleaning at 9 a.m. Why would I do something like that? That's insane. That's too much work. The kids are going to go right after me and destroy what I've just cleaned. I'll turn around and there'll be glue everywhere and construction paper and bits all over the place. And I'll think to myself, I just cleaned that. I'm not going to do that. That's too much work. Being in a perpetual state of readiness is far too much work. So I'm going to allot just enough time for my wife to find the house in acceptable fashion. For when she gets home, I, I'm going to say, oh, okay, she's coming home at four. Hmm. Oh, that's messy, and that's messy, and that's messy. I'm going to start cleaning at three, because I don't want to start cleaning at nine. Keeping the house in a state of perpetual readiness, that's crazy talk. But this is what Jesus is asking of us. Don't, don't, don't presume to know when I'm going to return. In fact, I don't presume to know when I'm going to return. Ultimately, because I want you to be ready for whatever time I come. Whether it's nine, 10, 11, or two. And you know when I panic, when Gina says she's going to be home at four and she shows up at 3.30. That's when I know that I'm going to be in marital discord. Because I have not kept the house in a state of readiness. Jesus does not presume to know his return because he does not want us to know when the return is going to be. He's saying if I'm going to show this restraint, you can show this restraint. Just be in a state of perpetual readiness. The problem is that's incredible work. And that's what I mean by you got to do the hard work. To be in a state of perpetual readiness is really, really tough. I mean, we know what the Christian disciplines are. And they're hard. They're not always easy. They're not always easy. If I tell you that the Christian disciplines are always easy, I'm lying to you. You got to church today. That might not have been easy for some of you. Maybe you have mobility issues. Maybe you're a little bit under the weather. Maybe you had a big weekend where you're hosting people. You woke up and thought, I'm exhausted. You got to church today. Tomorrow morning, you'll, you'll, you'll read the Bible because you know that your faith grows and your relationship with God grows as you read your Bible. Tomorrow, you will pray to ask that your will comes into line with the will of God your Father and that you can be his ambassador into this world. Some of you will walk out the doors today and you will give of your offering and you'll, and, and, and you'll give sacrificially today because you know that giving to the things of God brings about the things of God uh, in your life. There's blessing and there's favor that comes upon you when you trust him with your finances. Some of you will leave this place today and you will go with pray and go and, and you're going to go in the rain because this is the only time you have and you're going to be praying for your neighborhood and you're going to run into people and you're going you're gonna to pray for them and you're, you're going to say, wow, that's the only time I had and I'm exhausted, but I did it anyways. There's going to be some of you who, who leave this place today and you get ready for the Bible study that you're leading at your workplace and that's how you spend your afternoon, but you're hopeful that some of your coworkers will come to know Christ. So, so there's a lot of work 
to, to do in this thing. I mean, there's people down the hall right now who are watching some of our children in the nurseries that then got up early so they could do that, and then they're watching the kids in the nursery, and then they're going to stay and listen to the word in the second service so they can get filled up to, to, to go about their week. It's a lot of work. It's a great effort to be perpetually ready. It's, a, it's great effort to, to do the things that God's called us to do. And the problem for so many of us is that we're looking back at God, and he's saying, I want you to stay awake all night, and we're going, that's too hard. It's too much. I will stay awake for what I deem to be an acceptable amount of time. I will do, in the kingdom of God, what I deem to be an acceptable amount of work that, that, that fits my schedule. That's what I will do. And God's looking back at us and saying, no, be ready. Stay awake. Be in that place of perpetual readiness. And I ask you today, if, if today you choked on your ham sandwich while watching the Browns secondary have another breakdown and Tom Brady throw a touchdown against us, and, and the Lord were to take you home today, would you be doing today that which you'd be able to say honestly before the Lord, I was ready to meet you? This is where Jesus wants us. In a constant state of hard work. In a constant state of doing what we're called to. No days off, right? Except for the Sabbath, in which case we hang out at church. But anyhow, no days off. My kids tell me all the time it's too much work. But I don't believe it's too much work because I have a holistic perspective. I may, I'm the authority. I'm able to see from the top. That's not too much work. I look at one of them and I say, Mom's coming home. I want you to go into the toy room and I want you to pick up all the Legos. And they look back at me and they say, all the Legos? Yes, all the Legos. And I'll say, they'll say, well, Dad, everybody got Legos out. And I was like, yes, and you will put them away. Somebody else will do something else to get ready for mom's homecoming, but you, you, I need you to just put the Legos away. And they're, that's too much work. No, it's not. I go in there and do that in five minutes. It might take you ten. You can pick up the Legos. I'll look at another kid and I'll say, hey, I want you to do the dishes before mom gets home. Oh, okay, dad. They'll go in the kitchen. Hey, dad. Yeah. Do I have to do the pots and pans as well? This does not compute. I ask you to do the dishes. But of course, it's easy to rinse off the plates and the forks and put them in the dishwasher, but, 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 but scrubbing pots and pans, that takes elbow grease. And so I say, no, no, just leave those for me. I'm, I'm, I'd love to do the pots and pans. Don't sweep the floor either. No, I say, of course. I ask you to do the dishes, just do the dishes. Because I have a whole list of perspective, and I know that's going to take them 25 minutes, and then they can go on with their day, Right? I ask another one, hey, this is real life, by the way. They'll be in second service. They'll laugh, and some of them will be mad I brought them up, and some will be happy. It doesn't matter. Long story short, humbles them. Long story short, somebody will go into the dining room, and I'll say, I want you to vacuum the dining room. And they'll look at me, and they'll say, well, who's going to move the chairs? What? <laughs> right? Whoa. See, because I'm thinking to myself, I, I, I work. I, I, I come home and I work some more. You go to bed and I keep working. I, I, just, I just need you to do what I asked you to the fullest with all of your heart. But the, the issue is not the work, and that's the problem. My kids aren't lazy. They're actually very hard workers when they're motivated. Ooh, that'll preach. 
Ah, get motivated. Um, my kids are very hard workers when they're motivated. What's the real problem? They want to get back to doing what they want to be doing. That's why they don't want to get ready. They want to get back to doing what they want to do. And the fact that I have asked them to come in line with my will is a great imposition. And therefore, they will only do the bare minimum and look back at me and say, see, I did my work. And I said, but no, that's not what I asked you. See, that's the, that's the problem of constant readiness. It's that we continually have to say, not my will, but yours. We continually have to say, not my schedule, but yours. We continually have to say, you know what? That isn't too much work. That, that's not that much when you consider all the free time I have in my life to do the things that you've asked me to do, Lord. And the Lord says, no, it's not. It's not too much for me to ask you. I haven't asked too much of you. The things that, that make you a righteous Christian are not too much. In fact, they're actually to your blessing and your benefit. Do the work that will please our Lord unto the day that he visits us, because one will be taken and one will be left. I know that some of you are saying the return of Christ might not happen in my lifetime, and it might not. But there will be a day that you stand before the Lord, and you do not know what day that will be. Don't wait to the last minute to start doing the work that God has asked you to do. Make it a habit and start doing it now. So that every day of your life you can say, I stayed awake and I was ready, Lord. So that's the first of the many parables. Let's look at the second, verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over the household to give them food at their proper time? Who is that one? He's the one who does it. The one who was in charge of his master's food who then gives that sustenance, that life-giving sustenance to people at their proper time. I want to thank Jesus because you know in these last 14 weeks I have been horrified that he won't tell me who I am in the parable. Have you remembered this? Who am I? Am I the seed or am I the, or am I the sower or am I the soil? Am I the servant who invites or am I the guest in the house? Which one am I, Right? In this case, he tells us exactly who we are. We are the lead servants in this world to distribute the life-sustaining food of God at its proper time. This is a state of being. This is what he wants to find us doing when he returns. You might say, well, what is the life-sustaining food of God? What, what is the food that Jesus is referencing? And, and for that, we would have to look throughout the book of Matthew to see those places where we have a reference to feeding people and food, wouldn't we? We might go all the way back to the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness with Satan, where Jesus says, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And we would say, okay, now there's sustenance. There's food that we have to give people. We might go back to those, those miracles, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, where we learn the great identity of Jesus, who is not only the, the Messiah of the Jewish people, but he is the Savior of the world, the 12 and the 7, and that the disciples of Jesus pick up their baskets of leftovers because there is more for us to give 
unto a lost and dying world. We could go back there and think the identity of Christ as the Messiah of the Jewish people and the Savior of the world, that would be life-giving food that we would distribute at its proper time. Or maybe we just wait a few chapters and Jesus sits with his disciples and takes a loaf of bread and says, this is my body given for you. And takes a cup after supper and saying, this is the blood of the covenant which is given for you. See, we have plenty to feed people. Plenty to give people at the proper time. See, we are told that we are leaders who have access to the master's food. And we are the ones who distribute it to the people who need it. We're not the ones constantly going, excuse me, I'm coming to church to be fed. We are the ones who leave this place to feed others. We are the ones that distribute that which God has in droves, the storehouse of food to others. God's servants feed those who have been entrusted to us. So we've seen that one state of being ready is the hard work that it takes to be ready. But one of the other states of being ready is to look after what God's entrusted to you. And the question for you and I today would be this. First, if Jesus were to come for us tonight and say, I'm calling this whole age to a close, would you be found feeding the ones that God has given you? Would you be a servant leader who is distributing the life-sustaining goodness of God? Would you? And the second great question that this asks us, this parable of readiness, is who has been entrusted to me? Who is it? I know for some of you, you would say immediately, well, my kids and my grandkids, that's who's been entrusted to me. And that's true. That's an incredible charge that the Lord has given you. If he's blessed you with children or blessed you with grandchildren, that is a great trust to whom much is given, much is required. God has entrusted them to you, and you should be able to give them back to God. But that's not it. On the authority of Scripture, that's just not it. Because we've learned in this series that that good soil produces fruit 30 and 60 and 100-fold. You can't hand back to God exactly what he's given you and say, see, I did my work. In fact, on the authority of Scripture, again, we can't because two parables from now, we're going to get the parable of the talents, right? And who's the wicked servant? The wicked servant is the one that says, hey, I handed back to you exactly what you gave me. You're welcome. We can't do that. God's not interested in that. God's interested in fruit. He's interested in exponential fruit. So yes, we are to hand our children and our grandchildren back to God and say, thank you, Lord. They are your servants. They are, they are yours, and, 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 and they will serve you all the days of their life, and they will find joy and happiness in serving you. And, and, and I've raised them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But if we stop there, we are remiss. He's entrusted so much more to you. Who have you been placed over today to be a servant leader? 
Who can you distribute the food of God to right now? Who is in your sphere of influence? We've been arguing to you for 14 weeks that your sphere of influence, that includes your neighborhood. If Christ were to return tonight, would he ask you, what have you done with these houses around you? Would he ask you or would he say, no, 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 no. That was somebody else's to feed. It, what about your workplace? If, if Christ were to return tonight and he were to look at you and say, have you been feeding those I entrusted to you? But don't worry about your workplace. Those people were someone else's to feed. Students, how about your school? If Christ were to return tonight and look at you and say, did I find you feeding those entrusted to you? Would he look at you and say, thank you for doing that, but your school was exempt? Or are you to be the servant leader wherever you go? Or are you to be the one who distributes the food to all those entrusted to you? Because Jesus wants a return on the investment he's made in you. 30, 60, 100 fold. And, and the fact of the matter is, the sad fact from the scriptures is that many of us will not be found this way. We'll be found selfish and self-indulgent. We're going to beat those servants. We're going to do violence upon them. We're going to say, they exist for my benefit. I don't exist for theirs. And we're going to be in a place of, of eating and drinking and hanging out and doing stuff but we will not have done the most important thing, which is to distribute the food of God. This, Jesus said, gets us in line to spend eternity with the hypocrites. People who say one thing, but do another. Jesus is concerned about this. That we as Christians not be people who say one thing, but do another. Because if we say one thing and do another, we are in a place that the hypocrites are at. We say, he saves me, but I don't live my life as though he wants to save others. And Jesus says, no, 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 you are not to be in the position of always receiving food, you should put yourself in position to distribute it. Your life ought to be given in service to those who need the bread of God. Because he's coming in a day when we least expect. One will be taken and one will be left, so we've got to do the work now, and we have to look after what he's entrusted to us right now. Look after what he's entrusted to you right now. Don't say that you have time. You may not have time. Don't say that you have decades. You may not have decades. Don't wait to the very last minute for the coming of Christ because you won't be found ready. He's entrusted things to you right now, people to you right now. What are you going to do? with what he's entrusted to you. You know, this is why we've done this whole shine your light thing for 14 weeks so far. Because we believe that God's entrusted to us collectively a lot more than we're feeding. 
so excited that in the coming weeks, a number of you are restarting your Bible studies in your neighborhoods and your workplaces so that people can come in and get life-saving food, knowledge of Christ and the Word of God. That's incredible. It's why we're encouraging students, what about a Bible study or a prayer meeting at your school? One that starts with, with just maybe three people, but then builds to six and eight. Maybe it's 15 minutes on a Thursday morning. But three months from now, the people in that prayer meeting are saying, we need to meet more, we need to pray more, there's more needs in our school. We ought to do this. That's why next summer we're not just doing VBS here, we're going to do VBS in neighborhoods. Because we're going to try to shine our light in these neighborhoods that have been entrusted to us. That's why 110 of you are doing pray and go. Because you're believing in the spirit of the Lord that God has more people to entrust to us. It's not a church growth program. It's not a way to put rear ends in the seats. It's a recognition that collectively we ought to be ready for the Lord's return for whenever he comes. Feeding those who are entrusted to us. Making every effort so that on the day that he visits us, we will stand and say, we were ready for you, Jesus. We've been doing the things that you called us to do with all of our heart. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Oh, Lord, we want to be a people who are ready for your return. Some of us, Lord Jesus, admittedly, have not wanted to do the work. We've looked back at heaven all of your provision, all your love, all your mercy, all your grace, and said, thank you for that. But I don't want to do the pots and pans. I'm going to need help to pick up these Legos. Someone else ought to move the chairs, and then I can do what I ought to do. Oh, Lord, would you help us? God, help us to do that which you've called us to do. God, would you stop the voice of the enemy in our lives that says it's too hard and it's too much work to do what God's called us to do? Would you silence that silly, stupid, hellish voice that tells us it's too much to read our Bible, too much to pray, too much to serve in the church, too much to evangelize? That's just too much work. Lord Jesus, silence that voice, we pray. Silence it. Help our ears to come alive unto you and be attuned to your voice. Your voice that says the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. Therefore pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers into his field. The voice of Christ that says shine your light. Put it on a lampstand for all to see. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Speak to us, Lord. Speak to us. Lord, convince us that 30, 60, or 100-fold is not insane. It's expected. Speak to us, Lord. 
speak to us. And for those of us, Lord Jesus, who don't see ourselves as servant leaders, ones who have been entrusted with so much more than we could ever imagine, oh Lord, may we draw upon your storehouse and begin to distribute from the great wealth that you've given us. May you give us innovative and creative ways to distribute the food that you have to our neighbors and to our workplaces and to our schools, Lord. Help us not to say that any task would be too great. Help us to be excited about what you might call us to. Oh, Lord, help us to be a servant who distributes that which the world needs so desperately. We want to be ready. We want to be ready. So Lord, give us a little bit of time. And we look forward to you coming. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you this morning. Will you stand? I hope you'll enjoy this beautiful day that Northeast Ohio has cooked up for us. After today's sermon, I only have one major assignment. Do not eat a ham sandwich while watching the Browns. We'd like to see you here next week. But do get ready. And I just encourage you today, take one step to do the work that he's called you to do. And pray one prayer this afternoon to say, Lord, who have you called me to feed? He is so faithful to show us people that he's entrusted to us if we ask. God bless you. We'll see you.